We are actually today going to be um, doing our last sermon on this series on the book of Ephesians, right? So those of you who have been with us over the course of the last six months um, know that we started all the way back in the fall. Um, Really, we covered the first three chapters of this book of Ephesians, which is really sort of a heavy sort of theological treatise. And in this book, in the first three chapters, Paul talked about all these ideas like how you've been called, you've been chosen, you've been predestined, how God sees you as holy and blameless because of Christ's work. I mean, all these sort of big theological ideas. And I don't claim to be able to understand sort of the depths of all of those. Uh, My job sort of in preaching through this series is to simply tell you what Scripture says. That's really ultimately what Seven Hills Fellowship is here to do. And then uh, starting in the winter, we started covering the next three chapters, which were chapters four through six. And so essentially, if the first three chapters were all about, here's what's true about the gospel, then verse chapters four through six were all about sort of, okay, here's how you live life in light of those things. And so basically what we're told in the book is in light of the gospel, we, those people who have come to trust in Christ as our Savior, we are called to be gentle and humble and patient all the time, right? That doesn't mean not to be strong. It doesn't mean not to be direct, but it even means in your strength and in your directness, being gentle, humble, and patient. Uh, it talked a lot about sort of this idea of the old self versus the new self. And the old self, the marks of the old self were really things that led to decay, relational decay, social decay, physical and emotional, psychological decay versus the new self, which leads to wholeness. And then he sort of, Paul switches the analogy to talk about the way of darkness and the way of light. And again, the same sort of ideas are there. There's decay uh, and that's associated with the old sort of way of darkness. And there's really wholeness and goodness and peace. And sort of there's this idea of flourishing as human beings in the way of light. And then we talked about submission and self-sacrifice, particularly as it works its way out in marriage and then in parenting and also in work. And the idea that Paul was sort of talking about there is that this idea of submission and self-sacrifice is really found in the Trinity, right? It's really ultimately sort of God the Father directing and Jesus the Son saying, I'll sacrifice, I'll submit to you. So all of these things are found in Scripture. Uh, Last week, we talked about sort of Paul wrapping up the book. And he said, finally, you need to be aware that you have a real enemy. And this real enemy, who's a spiritual enemy, intends you harm. And the way that he seeks to harm you and to bring chaos into your life individually, chaos into your life relationally, emotionally, psychologically, socially, the way that he does that is he tempts you, he accuses you, and he deceives you. That was what we talked about last week. Today, we're going to jump back in. And again, this is the last um, section of the book of Ephesians we're going to cover. Before we jump in, I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you um, that like a loving father, or a loving mother, or a loving doctor, or a loving teacher, uh, you tell us things that we don't always want to hear. And, and so, Father, we thank you that you love us enough not only to tell us what we don't want to hear, us to hear, but, Father, you even show us uh, in our own hearts what we don't want to see. So, Father, I would simply ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would be upon uh, the people of Seven Hills Fellowship, and that your Spirit would enlighten not only our minds, but also our hearts, that we might trust in you as our Father, and your Son Jesus as our Savior. It's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. 
Now, as I thought about sort of jumping into this last section of the book of Ephesians, it's about sort of this concept of armor. And so I thought a little bit, all right, well, you know, what is the thing in our culture that we think of when we think about armor? And I thought, thought about football, you know, you have a helmet, you have pads. You know, I thought about if you're a soldier, you have body armor. But then I thought the thing that probably or the suit of armor that most people are probably most aware of is actually a suit of armor worn by a superhero named Iron Man, all right? Now, just bear with me for a minute. You can laugh. as This is all goofy a little bit. That's all right. But you can see this is from 1963. This was the first sort of appearance of Iron Man in 1963 in this comic book. And you can tell he's just sort of this goofy-looking, rounded sort of iron dude shooting a light out at what is apparently a bad guy caveman. All right? That's 1963. Then, if we move along through the trajectory of Iron Man, in 1965, he got a little makeover. And so he looks a little bit cooler, right? He's got, you know, the, the familiar sort of yellow and red suit with some very big boots on. I don't know what those are all about. Anyway, so he's, you know, sort of moving along. And then we've got the Silver Centurion in 1985. He's getting a little more cool. He's got some pretty big uh, shoulder pads, which I don't know if you know anything about the 80s, but shoulder pads are very big in the 80s for men and women. So just go back and look at some pictures. Just Google it. Uh, yeah, then, again, it continued sort of to morph into War Machine 1992. He looks a little bit different. 2006, we've got the Hulkbuster suit. And, and all the way through, again, there's all these adaptations. There's stealth mode. And so what happens is these things have adapted all the way through the suits of armor that protect you. And, uh, and you know, one of the things that's um, consistent with these suits is they keep changing. And so here we've got a couple more, cha- more recent changes. One, we've got this guy right here, which I don't know if you can see him, but he's got an Iron Man suit on. And he's got a really cool little Tony Stark beard and mustache drawn on his face. So that kid's loving life. It even went on to adapt so that, you know, women could be sort of iron women as well. And so you've got this young lady right here. And then most importantly, I laughed so hard when I saw this picture. (laughs) Let me tell you why it's funny. So this is a Halloween costume. I don't know if you can see the boy's face. He is not happy. (laughs) He has clearly begged his mom for the $19 Halloween costume that's at Walmart. And she said, no, 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 I can make you a suit. Wear your red shirt, and I'll put some yellow felt on your arms, and we'll make a cardboard mask for you. And what is hanging on his chest is a tap light. You know the old tap lights? You tap it or whatever. And so the mom is like, I'm the homeschool mom of the year. You know what I mean? Like, everybody's going to dig me. And the kids look on his face is like, I, my friends are going to make so much fun of me. Anyway. Okay, that's good. So the idea here is we're sort of moving into this theme of the armor of God. If you look back, and don't, don't physically look back, but if you think back to all those Iron Man suits, there are a couple of things. One, they protect sort of whoever's wearing them physically. But not only that, they're powered by that little sort of circular thing on Iron Man's chest, which is called the arc reactor. And the arc reactor is this little nuclear power plant that really empowers the suit to work. What you don't see in those pictures is that there is an artificial intelligence um, program named Jarvis, which sort of operates in Iron Man and helps him actually run the suit. And so he's got sort of the power of the nuclear reactor, the arc reactor, but then he's got sort of the direction of Jarvis, the artificial intelligence, helping him know how to operate the suit. We're going to jump into those things for a very particular reason in a minute, but ultimately it's the armor that's the important thing. Let's, let's jump into Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, and let's take a look at what, what God has to tell us about the armor of God, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. 
Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. All right, so what do we see in this passage? Well, I'm not going to put this up on the screen, but the first thing we saw last week is that we have a real enemy, right? And this real enemy intends to harm us, to do us damage. This real enemy wants to to infuse chaos wherever he's able to infuse chaos. That's the first thing. The second thing that we see in this passage is that our ability to wield the armor of God is dependent not upon our strength, but our ability to wield this armor is dependent upon God's strength. That's why verse 10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So in the same way that the Iron Man suit only works if the arc reactor, that nuclear reactor, is functioning, so our ability to wield this armor of God, again, it's not based on our strength. It's based upon God's strength in us. Now, part of the reason that this is made clear through all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is because our tendency is to try to live this life of holiness and goodness in our own strength, but the problem is is that we do not have what it takes. God does create us strong. He creates us in his image, but that strength is broken, and so now we need his strength functioning in us. The question is, how do we access that strength? Let me read uh, 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 12, verses 9 and following, and it'll make clear how we access the strength of God, and it's a little bit counterintuitive and a little surprising. Here's what he says, but he said to me, that is God said to me, Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, right? Our ability to wield the armor of God comes when we give up, right? When in desperation we say, I do not have what it takes. I cannot do this. I am not strong enough. God, please do this in me. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This ability to wield the armor of God only comes when we give up our strength, and in desperation we turn to God and we say, God, I need you to do this in me. I need you to protect me. I need you to fill me. I need you to make me strong. The second thing we see in this passage is that our ability to wield this armor is dependent upon prayer. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says this, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so this idea of praying in the Spirit, it's actually only used three times in Scripture. It's used in 1 Corinthians, it's used in Jude, and it's used here in Ephesians 18. And each of the times that that uh, phrase is used, what it means is, is with the help of or in connection to. And at the risk of sounding very cheesy, I get it, I'm going to go back to the Jarvis or artificial intelligence um, sort of illustration from the Iron Man suit and uh, tell you this, that the only way that Iron Man suit can work and function properly is if it has not only the strength of that arc reactor, but also this artificial intelligence to help it know how to use the suit or help the wearer to know how to use the suit. In the same way, right, as we wield the armor of God, we need God's Holy Spirit directing us and guiding us in how we use this armor of God. I'll give you a super quick illustration. 
couple mornings ago, I woke up at 5 a.m. I had a nightmare, and I'm not going to tell you what the nightmare was because it really actually wouldn't make any sense to you. But I had a nightmare, and I don't know about you guys, but like when, when during the day, if things hit me that might cause me to worry or be anxious in some way, you know, the daytime, I can kind of let them roll off my back. And consciously, I can sort of, you know, sort of put the fear away. But sometimes when I am sort of faced with something that's scary in my dreams or in the middle of the night, it's almost like my, just my ability to fight anxiety is much, much weaker. And so I woke up at 5 a.m., and this thing from my nightmare was just sort of running around in my head, and my thoughts were kind of spinning, and, and I couldn't really control it. This is really literally three nights ago. And so I started thinking, all right, well, is this just my worldly flesh? You know, is this just my weird psychology? Is this actually an attack from the evil one? I don't know, but I started actually praying through and thinking through the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, right? The gospel of peace, all these things. And I actually started sort of praying through each of them. And in doing so, part of what happened was that I did reach a level of calm and of peace because part of what the armor of God ultimately means is that God's saying, look, I'm, I'm trustworthy and I'm good. You can trust in me. Whatever comes, you can trust in me because I am your good father. But I functionally prayed in the spirit for him to help me to know, you know, which of these truths of God is the most effective in defeating my fears and my anxieties and maybe the evil one right now, right? Our ability to wield the armor of God has to come from the strength of God and the power of his might, but it also has to be directed by the spirit. All right, we're going to jump in now to the armor of God, all right? So that's points one and two. You got six more to go, all right? It's a little bit of a marathon. I'm going to try to hurry. All right, so the armor of God. All right, let's do this. Let me say this. A lot of people sort of have debates about what the armor of God is. Let me just very simply say that the whole armor of God is nothing less than the gospel, right? Let me just say the whole armor of God is nothing less than the gospel, the good news. Let's jump in. Uh, The first piece of the armor of God is the belt of truth. We've got a picture of it up here. And so the belt of truth, this is sort of a real, um, you know, belt that a Roman guard or Roman soldier would have worn. But uh, basically, it kept the tunic in place. This is sort of the the very, you know, sort of the second thing that went on over the tunic, kept the tunic in place. Um, It kept, you know, held a sword and a dagger. And I don't mean to be gross, but it also protected the groin because everything needs to be protected when you're in battle. And and not only that, but there are these metal things on there that would sort of jangle as the Roman uh, soldiers would walk. And so that's the idea here of the belt of truth, right? You're you're to gird up your loins with the belt of truth. Of truth. Now, this is where the commentators sort of differ. A lot of people will say, well, what this means is you've got to be really truthful as a person, and if you're really truthful, then you'll be strong, right? I'm going to argue against that in every single point of the armor of God, and the reason I'm going to argue against that is because one of the things that Ephesians has made very clear all the way through is that all these things that we possess have been given to us by God, right? None of these things are in us. We don't simply access truthfulness. Rather, We're given the truth. We're given all of these things. That's why we're strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, right? And so this truthfulness is not some moral or ethical quality that we possess. Rather, it's the truth about who God is. It's the truth about who we are. And it's the truth about reality. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to sort of a broad group of people. There are Pharisees. There are disciples. There are people who we might call sort of seekers who are just interested in checking them out. And in the midst of sort of him talking about all these things, he says to all of them, disciples and Pharisees, everyone, he says, you're from below. In other words, you're from the earth. That's where you come from. I'm from above. You're of this world, but I am not from this world. 
And so in, in essence, what Jesus is saying is, I have access to truth and information that you don't know anything about. And then he says this very famous phrase, which a lot of you guys are familiar with. It's posted in courtrooms around the nation. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, this truth I've revealed to you. Well, what's the truth that Jesus revealed to the disciples and to us? That my father is a good father, right? Insert the illustration of the prodigal son, right? That I come from heaven in order to redeem and to rescue you. These are the true things. So our ability to stand the temptations and accusations and deceptions of Satan come not from our own personal truthfulness, but come from knowing the truth that God has revealed to us in Jesus. So when Satan comes to you and says, God doesn't love you, he doesn't even really like you, right? He does not love you. Then you need to know that the revealed truth of Jesus was this, for God so loved the world, that is you, that he gave his only son, right? And that truth sets us free, right? When Satan comes to deceive us and say, hey, look, sexual expression is just a normal, natural human thing. It's really good for you to begin expressing it when you're in junior high and then middle school and then throughout high school and all the way through college and you're just sort of practicing for one day, whatever, it's not only fine, it's good, then you need to hear what Jesus reveals to us about the way that his father, who's the architect of reality, speaks about sexuality when he says, he who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her. In other words, the truth of God is ultimately what protects us from the temptations and the accusations and the deceptions of the evil one, the belt of truth. The second thing that we see in this passage is the breastplate of righteousness, right? We've got another picture of the breastplate of righteousness up here. Now, it was usually made of, uh, of bronze. Sometimes it was made of leather. But ultimately, you can just imagine it protected the heart, it protected the lungs, it protected the vital organs. And in the same way that he's not talking about, uh, in the previous point, our truthfulness, although that's good and important, he also here is not talking about our righteousness. He's not saying that, hey, if you're really righteous, that your righteousness will protect your heart and your organs and your lungs and all of these things. The truth is, in some respects, it will, but that's not what he's talking about here. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 has this to say about your righteousness that you try to sort of buy God off with. Here's what Isaiah says. We're all infected and impure with sin. In other words, our best intentions to love our wives, to be good friends, to be good students, our best intentions to be honest, our best intentions to have noble sort of purposes behind working out and by doing you know, sort of charity work, all those things, they're all infected and impure with sin. If you don't believe that about yourself, just keep on living, right? just going to be a matter of time before God reveals to you your brokenness. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags, right? They're impure, right? They're polluted with our sin. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Again, the righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness, is not our moral or ethical righteousness, but instead it's the righteousness of Christ, right? It's the righteousness of of Christ. We withstand the accusations of Satan because our righteousness isn't the thing that's keeping us strong. Because if it were our righteousness, none of us could stand, right? I couldn't anyway. And I'm kind of a professional Christian guy, right? I'm pretty good, but I'm not good enough. That's not where my strength lies. My strength lies not in my righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. That's why the British pastor, Edward Mote, uh, writing a hymn in 1834, could write this. He could write, 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Right? My hope, the breastplate of my righteousness is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. It's the gospel. It's good news, right? Satan will come to you and he'll say, you are not righteous enough, right? You've done too many bad things, not enough good things. And you can simply respond by saying, you are absolutely right. But the good news is it's not my righteousness that matters. It's the righteousness of my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. He is the breastplate of righteousness, truth, righteousness, peace, shoes of peace. Verse 15 says, for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. Now, we've got a picture of them up here. These are sandals with metal cleats. So they're kind of like soccer shoes or baseball cleats or, you know, football shoes. Um, not only do they help with traction so you can stand firm, but also they help with agility and being able to cut and move and, uh, and be quick, right? Um, quick story. Uh, my roommate in, in seminary was a guy named Howard Brown. And Howard played first trumpet for the Clemson Marching Band. So he's really uh, just a really a, a fun guy and a neat guy. A lot of good stories. And he was telling a story one time. He said, we played in a bowl game that was in Japan. I don't know what bowl games played in Japan. Maybe it's a preseason game. And he said, you know, the band was out there kind of, you know, warming up, doing their thing. And he said his buddy was a drum major. And so as the drum major, the guy's out front that does this. I don't know. Anyway, but his buddy's a drum major. And he said, you know, they were out there on the field doing something. And, you know, the, the, when you're in the band, you wear these white, shiny, patent leather shoes with like a real slick leather bottom. And he said the field was made of AstroTurf. And he said, we'd been out there doing something. And we were, had finished our routine, and the drum major was sort of the last person to leave the field. And he said, the, uh, the, the team, the Clemson Tigers, ran out on the field a little bit early. And he said, I turned around, and I saw my buddy who was the drum major. And he said, he looked, and when he saw the football team running, he said he tried to run, but his feet went slip, slip. And he said he fell down on the middle of the field. And he said the football team was coming, and the guy tried to hop up, and he tried to run again, and his feet slipped again, slip, slip, and he fell. And he said, then the football team just ran over him. And he said, I couldn't help it. I laughed harder than I've ever laughed in my whole life. Anyway, the point is, that's the idea here with this picture of the shoes that uh, these soldiers would have worn that would have had traction. Now, again, what, what peace is being talked about here? Is this sort of our personal peacefulness? Are we peace-loving people? You know, is VP a good guy that wears tie-dyed shirts and, you know, is always really friendly to people? Is that the peace that's being talked about? No. The peace that's being talked about here is peace with God, Right? The ability to, to look at God and say, I see you as my heavenly father. I don't believe that you're angry with me. I think you actually love me. Again, because my righteousness is not my righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. And so the idea here is to be able to stand firm, to be sure-footed and quick, knowing that you have peace with God, right? So when Satan comes to you with his schemes and his wiles, seeking to tempt you and accuse you and to deceive you, you can stand firm and you can also get out of the way, right? Because you know that you have peace with God. When I stand up here um, and talk about the Lord's Supper on Sundays, and then I go over and I stand at my little station over there with bread and wine, one of the things that I always do is I remind myself as I take that bread and dip it into the wine, I remind myself that God is no longer angry with me. He's got no wrath for me whatsoever, right? He's not angry with me. Again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for me, right? For me. And when I take that bread and dip it in the wine, what that reminds me of is this big theological term, propiti uh, propitiation, which means that God's wrath has been removed, 
right? So if you're a self-loather like me, it's good to have the Lord's Supper and in it for God to declare, I'm not mad at you anymore. I see you as perfect and holy and good. I love you so much so that I sent my son to live the perfect life on your behalf. Satan will come to you. He will tell you that God doesn't love you, that God's mad at you. But if you have the peace that the gospel provides, knowing that you're at peace with God, you can stand against the temptations, accusations, and deceptions of the evil one. Truth, righteousness, peace. Then there's this idea uh, or concept of the shield of faith. Again, so we've got the verses here, but we've got a picture next. I want you to sort of see this idea of a Roman shield that Paul would have been thinking about when he wrote this. It was basically door-shaped. It was 41 inches high, and it was rectangular, and they would sort of be used to overlap. They'd be used sometimes uh, far away from the enemy, so when, if the enemy would shoot a volley of arrows, they would sort of stand like that, and so they, basically the arrows would only hit the shield, and it would protect the people underneath it. Sometimes they were used in close combat when the enemies would get closer with swords and shields, and they would actually use the shields to sort of knock the enemies back. And so again, question, the question here is, is this shield of faithfulness Is it the shield of our faithfulness or is it the shield of God's faithfulness? Again, I hope the answer is really clear to you by this point, that this shield that we stand behind, that goes in front of uh, the shoes of peace, that sort of stands in front of this breastplate of righteousness and even the belt of truth, this, this shield that we hold before us, this shield of faith is not our faithfulness, but it's the faith that God has given us in his son, Jesus. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 talk about this earlier in the book. They say this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, let me finish the verse. And this is not your own doing, right? There's one thing that the gospel tells us. There's one thing the book of Ephesians tells us. It says that all of these things that we're talking about today, righteousness, faith, truth, all these things, These are not things that exist within us naturally. These are things that God gives us. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one may boast. So it's not our faithfulness, but rather it's our faith in God, which has been given to us by him. It's the gift of God. And so the question is, how can this faith help? If we know that our salvation is not of ourselves, then we don't need the shoes, the breastplate, or the belt because all those arrows hit that shield of faith before they even get close to our body. So the image here is Satan shooting all these temptations at us, but they don't ever get through to us because they hit this shield. And so let me basically say this, that I think what's being talked about here is sort of a general trust in God, right? I don't know, for those of you who became a Christian when you were in high school, like Bob was talking about this morning, for those of you that became believers later in life, you know that one of the things when you became a believer is you had this sort of just amazing buoyancy. You could float through all these sort of difficult and hard things, all these hard temptations, because the gospel's so new to you that you trusted in God as your father, you trusted in Jesus as your savior. And so all those temptations of the evil one, they just sort of bounced right off, right? Because you believe that God is good. You believe that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. You believe that that was more than enough to cover over all of your sins, past, present, and future. And so when Satan comes to you and tempts you to believe that something else is best, that God is somehow holding out on you, you can simply trust in him and say, no, I don't believe that at all. I think he's given me his best already. I I know that what he wants for me is what's best. It's this general idea of just trusting that God is good, that he loves us, and he's doing what's best for us. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, 
And then the helmet of salvation, we've only got two more to go. Here's a picture of a helmet. It's made of bronze. Often there was a crest on the top. If you guys have seen sort of these, you know, the movie Gladiator or 300, you know, they would have had sort of this crest of horsehair on top, and sometimes it was dyed certain colors. There are flaps on the side to protect the neck from sort of slashing sword blows, and even sort of this lip on the back of the neck, so when they're hiding underneath the shield, if an arrow comes, it'll hit sort of that lip on the back of the neck. But ultimately, what this helmet did was it protected the control center of the soldier, right? And so the reason, again, that Paul is using this illustration here is he's basically saying that our salvation, this holistic idea of our salvation, that we've been saved from our sinfulness, but we also are going to be saved from death, that when we have that on our head, that it protects the control center of our lives. Now, what's interesting here is you can look at this and you can kind of think about, well, you know, what exactly is he talking about as salvation? Is the salvation he's talking about that initial time that I trusted in Jesus as my Savior? Or rather, is it this bigger idea of salvation when we think about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration? Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I listened to a couple sermons of his on this passage, and what he said is, he thinks that this ultimately is talking about final salvation, right? The restoration, that when everything is made new, that whether you die you know, of cancer or a heart attack or in a car wreck, that salvation is ultimately knowing that death is not the end, but that rather we will be saved even from death when God raises us again to be with Christ in glory. It's the idea of salvation as the restoration of all things good. That's why Philippians 1.6 can say this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, part of what Paul is saying there is he's saying, look, the salvation that God gives to you, the salvation that he brings to you is his work that he does in you from start to finish. So our hope is in the final salvation that God offers. I read an article this week uh, in, of all places, the Omaha World Herald. I'm not sure if any of you guys get that publication. Probably not. Anyway, Omaha World Herald. But there's a movie coming out that talks about this battle at Dunkirk, if you guys are familiar with that. And so the, the article is sort of talking about uh, the movie, but also uh, the actual sort of history behind this battle at Dunkirk. I'm going to just read the article. It'll be easy for me to do that. In the spring of 1940, the German army was plowing through France despite the help uh, from more than 300,000 British troops. U.S. troops were not involved at this point in the war. Finally, the Germans surrounded and trapped most of the Allied forces at Dunkirk, a town in northern France. It was a little coastal town right across um, the channel from England. It appeared that the Allied army would face annihilation or surrender. Eventually, though, a miraculous outpouring of courage, the British managed to organize an amazing flotilla of hundreds of little ships that evacuated most of the Allied forces. But before the evacuation, at one point when everything looked utterly hopeless, a British British officer sent the following message to as many of his troops as he could, condensed into three Powerful words. But if not, but if not. At the time, it was a strong message of courage and of ultimate hope in the midst of trouble. The message conveyed that the British would stand defiantly against the Nazis and that God would provide a way through the dark night. This article went on to explain the background of those three words, but if not, came straight from the Bible. As the prophet Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
face to the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, they refused to go down in defeat. Instead, they declared their trust in God, even when their mission failed. According to Daniel 3, they said, If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. But if not, words from God that still speak to our hearts today, but if not, words of hope and courage when the world seems dark and hopeless, but if not, words to live by, and for some, words to die by. See, part of what Paul is talking about here is he's saying, it may be that you will die of cancer. It may be that you will die of a wound. It may be that you will die of some other cause, but ultimately, we know that God will redeem us. God will save you ultimately from death. That's why Revelation 12 verse 11 can say this, they overcame him, that is the evil one, that is by Satan, by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Why not? Because they trusted in the salvation that was offered to them in God through Jesus. Final piece of this armor is the sword of the spirit. This little sword that we're going to see here in a minute is uh, called a gladius. It's about 20 inches long, so it's really a short little sword. It was used somewhat for slashing, but also it was used for stabbing. If you read a lot of commentators, a a lot of commentators will say this is the only piece of the armor of God that was sort of offensive in nature. And they're sort of trying to talk about how you go out and sort of attack with the sword. Um, Ultimately, again, back to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, what he said was, he said, look, that if you're using this sword, it's because your enemy is on top of you, right? Your enemy's there. Back to that sort of illustration of we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If you're using the sword, it's because Satan is already on you. He's close at hand, right? And he's saying the weapon that we use when Satan is right on top of you is the word of God. Listen to Jesus as he wrestles with Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if if you are the son of God, surely you're delusional. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes scripture to defeat Satan. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, if you're really the son of God, if you're not delirious, delusional, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him, right? It is written, it is written, 
it is written. Now let me just call time out for a second. And let me ask if that's the way that you've responded to Satan when you've been tempted. Right? When Satan tempted you at 1233 and you're online, did you respond, it is written? Right? When you were at the gym working out did, and Satan was tempting you, did you respond, it is written? Right? When you were taking that test on the honor system and you felt tempted, did you respond, it is written? When you were reading the romance novel that described someone that was a whole lot better than the person you're married to, did you respond, it is written, right? Is that how you responded? I, I say those things on purpose to kind of drive the arrow a little bit more deeply in, right? I, actually, I, I want you to feel the weight of your own failure a little bit more. I think the gospel needs us to feel that failure. God definitely saw it. That's why he gave us truth. That's why he gave us the righteousness of Christ. That's why he gave us peace. That's why he gave us all of those things. Listen to what God did. Listen to how he responded when he saw our failure and he saw our brokenness. We read these words in Isaiah 59 where he says, ultimately your hope is in the Redeemer. He says this, the Lord saw it, right? There's this picture being painted of all this sin. You can go to Isaiah 59 and read the whole thing, but there's this picture being painted of all this brokenness and chaos. It makes God's heart sad because the very people that he loves are wounded and hurt and rebelling and broken. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There was no one to intervene. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Right? What God very clearly is saying here is he's saying, your righteousness isn't enough. I'll give you mine. Right? You can't save yourselves, I'll save you, right? We don't have peace, there's chaos. I'll give you peace with me, trust in me, trust in my son, your redeemer who has come to save you, to protect you and to set you free. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given us um, a warning of an enemy who seeks to harm us. Father, I thank you that you've given us a reminder that we cannot do this in our own strength, but in yours. I thank you uh, that you've given us um, clarity that, uh, that we have to rely upon your spirit to even know how it is that we're to fight and to use this armor of God. And Father, we thank you for the declaration in the armor of God of the gospel. Father, that what protects us is your son Jesus, his righteousness his goodness, his perfect record, and his sacrifice on our behalf. Father, let us find our strength in you, and let us find our security and safety in your son Jesus over us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.